You're listening to the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I'm James Batchelor and I'm joined this week by... Brendan Sinclair. Marie D'Alessandri. And Christopher Dring. We're going to be talking about the biggest stories of the past week, starting with Rocksteady. Rocksteady has become one of many, many companies in the industry to face accusations of harassment and abuse. Recent stories have kind of focused on what's happening in the here and now. This is on uh, quite a specific incident. Back in November of 2018, uh, 10 of the 16 women employed at the studio co-signed a letter to the studio heads taking issue with all the unacceptable behaviour at Rocksteady, uh, including sexual harassment, slurs against transgendered people, uh, talking about women in derogatory and sex ways. The Guardian reported that now some of the women who signed that letter say that two years on nothing has changed. Uh, this was based largely on one source I believe uh, in the original report. One of the women who signed the letter came forward and said nothing has changed. They actually said, I'm going to quote her, um, I've heard everything from groping claims to incidents involving directors all of whom are men. She's talking about recent incidents. Yet the only thing we had as a result was a company-wide seminar that lasted an hour. Everyone who attended was asked to sign a statement confirming that they'd received the training felt that it was just a way for them to cover their asses. Now Rocksteady released a statement to The Guardian, but then took a perhaps slightly odd decision. They released a letter co-signed by some of the women who signed the original letter from two years ago. They posted it on its Twitter account, and these women have said... um, that they feel the anonymous source or sources in the Guardian article attempted to speak on behalf of all women at Rocksteady and we do not feel that this article is a fair representation of us, uh, the events at the time or things that have happened since the letter was received. According to Rocksteady on its Twitter account, the letter is unedited, unsolicited and again signed by seven of the eight original signatories. There seems to be some confusion as to how many people signed the original letter. But the last development in this story was uh, former Rocksteady scriptwriter Kim McCaskill um, uploaded a 13-minute YouTube video talking about the original November 2018 letter, which she helped write, or actually led the the writing of it and kind of um, spearhead that. She actually left um, Rocksteady, I believe she... It's, it's phrased she lost her job, which suggests she was let go, um, although I believe she, she has moved on to another studio at this point, so it might be that she... She chose to leave. She but phrased she it said as in her video. Being, she made it seem like she was pushed out. Yeah. yeah. So there might so be a she, technically yeah, so she resigned or something in the deal, but um, it was apparently made clear to her that that she wasn't wasn't really wanted there. And in her her video, she talks about how they told her like, "Oh, we just don't have enough money for for you now." Yeah. Yeah. So there's more of her, her comments in the video on the, on the site, and I'll put the, the link to the story in the show notes. Um, but one quote that stuck out to me was uh, that apparently it, it only took it, it's only taken a couple of phone calls for me to realise this behaviour is still happening. It's like all of our effort meant for nothing. Uh, this, it's more, more than anger, it's proper humiliation. This is not a good look for the studio, particularly one that at the time of recording is just hours away. Uh, I believe it's tomorrow is due to finally unveil the Suicide Squad game we all know they have been working on. Yeah, it's, it's ugly and it's sort of common, it, it, it feels like. Um, you can look at this, the the original uh, letter and the Guardian report, and it feels like something that we've seen a lot of at a lot of studios. Uh, just sort of that like casual, uh, not quite frat house, but but certainly like maybe maybe a little bit edgy or careless kind of office culture where people will throw around gendered insults or or just kind of discuss things in pretty crude ways. Um, And like that seems like a kind of, you know, relatively minor thing because we're not going to be, you know, running a whole bunch of, you know, we talk to so many people at the studio and there were some swear words said during during development like that's that's not something we really care about but it reflects on a company culture i think that that is uh maybe more uh, amenable to actual abuses taking place 
Um, it, it seems in a lot of these stories that so much of the way the, uh, the, the victims and the people who are, uh, you know, subjected to things like, you know, groping or harassment, the way they react, you hear them talk about it and they, they talk a lot about what it felt like. Um, and when you're in an environment where people are that kind of unprofessional and, and careless and feel free to just, you know, say denigrating things about women, um, you probably have less, less confidence that, that when one of the, the people running the show, uh, one of the directors of the studio really behaves in a, you know, beyond the pale, unacceptable kind of way that you'll get any kind of uh, justice or that anyone will really care about it because they're in power already. Um, they're calling so many of the shots. HR departments don't exactly have the best reputation for helping victims. And just the atmosphere, I think, contributes to this. And and the the rock steady the 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 people that we've heard from, um, the original Guardian letter and uh, Kim McCaskill were pretty pretty adamant that like ninety nine percent of the people at the studio are lovely people, and it's really just a handful of you know bad apples phrase that we that we hear a whole lot and you know you don't really here is much that that whole one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. Like that other part of the phrase is important because it is, you know, a couple of uh, bad actors that aren't dealt with properly. They, they, they spread that, that, you know, suffering far and wide and it undermines a whole lot of what the 99% of really lovely people otherwise could be achieving. And it's it's frustrating to see it play out again and again and again in, you know, really, really familiar, uh, almost formulaic ways. It's disheartening as well to, to hear that the, the hack... This story is not just around that abuse is happening. This this story is around that uh, the, an attempt was done to do something about the abuse, about the harassment, and and it has either... It's been. It's certainly been ineffective, and it's been minimal. The actual response has been minimal. Like, you know, like the, the the headlines were, you know, Reg, Rocksteady accused of inaction against um, harassment. If, as the you know, as the the sources were claiming were true, if like if all that happened was a seminar, you know, one one hour of lecturing the studios. By the way, don't be dicks to women. That is not enough. That is not a solution to a systemic issue that we have been discussing, not just in recent months because of the current um, wave of allegations and so forth, but for years. And it's really kind of disheartening. Like whenever, whenever these um, these waves of allegations happen, so obviously we have the the big kind of Me Too kind of moment um, last year, kind of this time last year. And then you know, a couple of months ago, more allegations come out, and Ubisoft seems, for example, Ubisoft has been quite prominent in this. Ubisoft are like firing execs left, right, and centre in terms of those who are who are identified and caught out, and and the the hope is that they're cleaning house. And you you all, I always cling to this faint hope that maybe this time this did, maybe this is the start of it changing. But if two years ago, an actual an action was taken to like right, we are going to deal with this, and two years on, nothing has changed. It, you, I can't help but like feel like. Well, what about the actions of it are taking now? What's different this time? It, we need, we need to do better. I think that the the, the training, uh, the training thing in particular, has been quite interesting to to read uh, for me because it's it's a conversation I've had several times now um, about training and how it is simply not enough, and a lot of companies are using it as. Um, tick box exercise like oh okay I'm sure I've done I've said that on the podcast before actually but like just oh we've done the training so it's okay now we're not racist anymore we're not dicks against women anymore well turns out you still are and uh, Brendan you mentioned this oh it's okay 99% of, of people at the company are actually okay and that actually made me think of uh, a reaction piece I read on Forbes and the writer whose name 
I don't have right now, unfortunately. Um, the writer was saying, um, in reaction to the latest uh, letter that Rocksteady shared, that seven out of eight women still at the company completely agree you don't have a sexual harassment issue. Yeah, that probably means you still have a sexual harassment issue because there are still other women at the company. And like, this whole thing is a mess to me because all, all it does is turning employees against each other because like, okay, they are women who say that that, that doesn't reflect the way they were treated at the company. Well, that's brilliant for them. I'm really happy for them. But that still means that there are a few women at the company that are not treated properly. And that is my issue because you can't say you don't have a sexual harassment issue um, if just two women or one woman has an issue with it. I don't know if I'm making myself clear, but I'm angry. That's why. Yeah. Like, so, so all of these, all of these things and, and you know, so much beyond even the video game industry, like bad things happen. And I understand that there are, there are bad actors out there. Um, there are abusive people and they will do what they do, but it always, it always kills me when that initial tragedy is compounded by the way people respond to it. And uh, in in McCaskill's video, she talks about how a couple years ago, 2018, she uh, she had experiences with harassment, and she talked to another uh, developer at Rocksteady who who had horrible experiences, and that was what prompted her to uh, she started talking. It sounds like one on one with the other 16 or so women at the company at the time, and tried to uh, draft this letter to management to tell them like here is here are the experiences of the women at your company here are the problems that they are facing here are the concerns they have about your company culture and that's a pretty i think that's a pretty responsible as far as the company is concerned uh, pretty responsible kind way to go about things she didn't go to the guardian in 2018 to say this this really unacceptable stuff is happening and this has a horrible sexist work culture she was going within the system basically keeping everything quiet and 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 private and alerting them to this problem while she was doing multiple revisions of that letter talking to people in order to get you know something that that reflects everyone's experience accurately she says uh, human resources tried to stop her from doing that at least twice and that ma management had told her that if she kept on with with this letter to inform management that she would jeopardize her position within the company and possibly her uh, position of being hired you know her ability to be hired by other companies going forward because she'd be seen as a troublemaker and that that is the part that i just cannot get over here because she's she's doing everything as an employer that you would want her to do right she's informing you of a problem so that you can fix it and she's informing you rather than going out and making a big public mess of it and dragging your name through the mud and they ignored her they said we we, we don't want to hear about our problems put their fingers in their ears and just you know that's that's even if they didn't push her out, even if they didn't fire her over this, which I think is giving them a large benefit of the doubt, like that reaction to someone that is putting themselves out there and taking a risk to help you make your company better infuriates me beyond belief. Hmm. I just did some um, ethical management training. Um, it was one of those things that we're made to do um, on, the, on the system. And um, I, I sort of was clicking for it. it. Took me forty-five minutes, and all of it is about um, uh, how basically what you know, make sure people feel open and available to talk, and, and they can say anything, and don't ever feel like repercussions are going to come against them, and all that kind of stuff. And I remember reading that. Uh, I was watching this and going, "Well, obviously, I mean, this is like this is. I mean, I it was one of those things where I thought, do I need to be told this? I mean, surely this is um, this is what." This is, of course, if someone has an issue and a complaint, you don't sit there and go, right, I'm going to fire that person. I mean, what are you talking about? Um, but then you hear stories like that 
and you sort of go, oh, okay, then people do need to be trained on on that. Um, yeah. uh, on, do the on, people that need that training, will that training make any kind of a difference to them? No, no. I'm pretty sure it's just a company protecting itself in case something like this happens. You know, I'm pretty sure, I'm sure Warner Brothers, because it's, you know, it's Warner Brothers team, studio. I'm sure they have the, exactly the same thing in order to protect their their company from reprisals. Yeah, I mean, so you whole... need to do, you need to do a lot more than just training people. Mm-mm. Oh, yeah. Actually, when I, when I, the first time I, I talked about training to someone uh, was for where we were talking about unconscious bias and uh, Cynthia Mutzia at uh, Smash Damage told me that uh, that type of training actually needs to be run just for people who want to attend because they realize that if you force people to attend it actually does even less like it does nothing for them so training is definitely not enough and yeah, yeah I wasn't saying that training needed to be done I just uh, I, yeah I was, no, sorry I was, I was just adding I was, some, I some just question. I mean yeah. I was just like um prized that I mean point being I, I, I think too good of people generally I think sometimes because um, it's like it's, this Rocksteady thing, I mean, I, is, it does seem a bit of a mess because, and the problem, this is the problem when you get a letter countering another letter. I mean, you know, the letter Rocksteady pushed out actually listed loads of other things they apparently did outside of this one hour seminar. Um, but but this is, this happened with the Rockstar, Rock Crunch thing. Rockstar then put out a load of employees that said, no, 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 there's no crunch problem. It's great here. And um and it's but the thing is, is always you're always going to get that. This is and often you know in the media there's no nuance behind it. We're not actually in we're not actually in the uh, situation. We don't quite know. But there are, one person's toxic culture is another person's like home away from home, right? You know, another person's uh, bullying is another person's slightly grumpy email. You know, it, it's there is there there is different perceptions of these things, and it's about but it's not about sort of downgrading things and just dismissing those issues. It's about um, lo- looking at you know, hang on. If this if this is being perceived in this way, and even though that may not have been the intention, and I'm, I'm I try not to speak too much about this sort of thing because I always end up saying the wrong thing <laughs> um, because I'm always <laughs> I'm always trying to I'm always trying to understand rather than that just get annoyed and angry about stuff. Um, but um, I just get angry. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I cause for, for me it's like it does it feels it feels like it feels crazy. Um, you know, uh, I know lots of people at Rock City. They're all wonderfully lovely people. I'm surprised this has happened. How can this happen? This can't be right. It's like when Ubisoft, Ubisoft's the loveliest company in the games industry, like mm. two years ago. Everyone loved Ubisoft. It was there all on stage, hugging each other and everyone. Everyone's behind Eves. What a wonderful, beautiful, amazing company it is. Two years later, everything's completely changed. I'm like, I oh, know I can't accept that. So that feels weird to me. <laughs> I mean, I can accept it. But, it, it, but uh, and so I end up, you know, going down these routes. But, um, but yeah, this Rocksteady thing seems like a complete mess. Like, you're right, people are, are almost, you know, people who are angry upset about things are being put against people who aren't quite so angry upset about things mm. it, it's it's um i'm not sure what my point is i'm gonna shut up <laughs> <laughs> well i i think individuals experiences in in companies vary just incredibly uh and and i think also like the more monolithic um a culture you have the more you try and make sure everyone is a, you know, a culture fit to a very specific kind of thing, the more likely it is that people that don't fit in that culture exactly are going to have a bad time of it. Like I, I remember, um, I think it was a, a MIGS keynote that, uh, riot games, uh, Brandon Beck. Um, I think it was him, um, gave, but it was it was basically a Riot Games keynote about how they hire for culture, culture fit. And like that's just the most important thing that we can get everyone on the same page and like how how they're they put so many resources into this. And then, you know, a couple of years later, we find out like, oh, okay, so your culture that you created it fit a very specific kind of person, but we also saw with the you know dozens of of women that came out talking about how horrible uh their experiences at riot were we also saw that your your culture was alienating and uh just letting a significant chunk of your your employee base uh go through really miserable experiences because they didn't fit and that's i i, I mean over the years, I think it's become very uh, clear that, you know, just like it, it's one bad apple that that 
has a huge impact on the culture of the rest of the you know company and can ruin the experience for a whole lot of people um just a few people who the culture is actively alienating you know they they're they can have just truly horrific horror stories that the rest of the culture everyone that's having a great time of it just doesn't doesn't see doesn't understand like you know how how many people are like yeah this is this is fine you know even even people that we talk to in in some uh some companies that have problems where you know even even if the problem that the company seems to have is like oh well they're really bad with women you know even women within those companies sometimes will will tell us like uh no no it was you know it was okay it was fine i didn't i didn't have horrible problems so this this kind of um you know harassment abuse suffering whatever it can be it can be siloed and it's not something that people often want to make really visible whether they're the abusers or the abused uh not something that people necessarily want to call attention to so like don't don't think that just because you think the company is is a-okay uh that everyone else's experience there matches yours it's interesting what you say there, Brendan. I, I'm, I'm in the middle. I'm saying the middle. I'm supposed to be in the middle um, of judging the best place to work awards. And there's certain terms that uh, I've come across. Like one, one company says they don't believe in cultural fit in their studio. They believe in cultural ad. And, I was going to say that. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Or maybe, maybe <laughs> we spoke to the same company. Um, I, I was going to say yeah because it was a quote. I was going to say that quote anyway. Sorry. Well, yeah. Well, it, well there we are. Um, it's, it's the idea that you know it's not about. Um, getting people to fit into what you already have. It's about expanding it and, and widening it and learning and developing new Absolutely. things. And it's really interesting. This stuff changes all the time. Like for years, cultural fit was the big thing. You know, all HR directors are going, we're looking for somebody to be a good cultural fit. Um, and uh, the actual, uh, and now that's that's going away. That's not what's seen as a expected. There's only a couple of years ago um, where, you know, uh, going, going out drinking every Friday night was a good thing for a company to do. And it, and, it, and that's now changed. And it's quite, this practices, these policies are changing all the time and they're evolving and the lessons are, are, are hard. Um, and, um, and yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really have, I doesn't really say anything. But yeah, what you're saying, Brendan, about um, uh, employee, uh, you know, the fact that you know, there might be what might work for a load of other people doesn't work for maybe one, two, three or four. That, that's absolutely right. It, it's about sort of trying to, um, in an industry that wants to widen and reach new people, um, both in the games that it makes and the people who make them, it, it, doing things like, oh, this is the culture of the studio. This is what this is what we're like. We're a little bit, we're a little bit spiky. We're a little bit edgy, and all this kind of, that, that's all well and good. But um, you need to be able to adapt and to adapt to new people and new types of cultures in order to achieve those goals of trying to widen the widen the business. Um, yeah. yeah. I think I think culture fit being being a bit of a dated concept is 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 an interesting um, is an interesting thing to talk about and I think like maybe maybe Rocksteady should think a bit more about the culture ad instead of the culture fit because like if we I just want to point out like the underlying issue here being that in a company of about two hundred and thirty people I mean maybe there were fewer back in 2018 I don't know there were only 16 women so can we just point that out as well like that probably doesn't help their culture that they don't seem to have a big diversity in the first place and that's something that maybe if you think about the company in terms of culture add into instead of culture fit um maybe maybe that can help that can help um yeah yeah no, yeah. yeah that's that's what 200 staff I mean that's um, not even 10 percent um <laughs> pretty it's not a lot yeah especially when 10 out, out of those 16 women um tell you that your studio has a sexual harassment it's, problem it's actually interesting also is not great interesting i'm going on because i'm doing the best place to work awards i'm sorry to keep bringing it up um but one of the things i noticed the very first year we did the best place to work awards we had this thing where um, one of the questions that we end up asking uh, studios is like, what's the diversity makeup of your, of your studio? And sometimes they can't tell us because of um, uh, privacy or because they don't know, and sometimes they can. And uh, one of the things I found out quite fascinating is some of the studios, um, ones that had like, I don't know, 90% men, for instance, 
Um, they're, they're, when I ask the employees, because we do a sentiment survey where we ask the employees, you know, how do they feel things are? It's not all of, you know, the, 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 the employer survey is about the facts, you know, what, what do you offer? What do you do? And then, and then the employee surveys, okay, we know what they offer, but how do you feel about it? You know, do you like these things? Is, do, you know, they say they've got great, they do great diversity initiatives. Do you feel that? Um, and, um, uh, and the start, the, 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 we found out that like 90% studios that were primarily men, um, they tended not to have that much of a bother about the diversity. You know, they didn't, they didn't, they never felt harassed. They never felt, you know, they were like, yeah, yeah, it's all good, all good. And they tend to score quite well. The studios that are actually better with diversity, the ones that had like 25% women or something in the, in the studio, um, they would score worse in the employee, employee, employer, employee survey because, um, uh, because obviously there's more women filling in the survey. <laughs> So and they and they and they and what may be an acceptable uh, culture for certain men or, or certain types of people um, wasn't accept isn't acceptable to that and that's why they end up scoring lower which is I always found which was a bit of a broken was a thing I spotted early on that was a bit of a broken element of the of the of the awards was that companies that were more diverse were scoring worse in the diversity survey than diversity element than those that were that were um, those that were uh, 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 more, uh, not diverse at all. But uh, it was, but it was fascinating because it just showed that you know um, uh, uh, that that you know uh, when you have a studio that is so primarily male dominated, that perhaps that you know that uh, that toxicity or that that uh, that those problems aren't they're just not noticed. And um, and so anyway, that, that was, uh, it. It speaks. I think it speaks to sort of the the difference between like not just recruiting diversity and hiring it but retaining it um because when you when you bring marginalized people into the company you then have to also make them feel welcome give them a seat at the table make sure that it's not just you know people at the very bottom rung of the company who's you know don't have the the influence uh to to really affect change when they when they see things that you know aren't uh aren't 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 in keeping with you know diversity and inclusion and 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 making them and other marginalized people feel welcome and valued and and like part of the team so it's it's not just you know hiring them it's it's hiring them into uh into roles of influence, giving them the the support and the you know latitude to to change your company the way it needs to change, and and ensuring that they they aren't you know just kind of thrown into the 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 homogenous culture thresher and and spat out because they're not a good fit. Welcome to a world where you can feel more. Also this week we've seen the debut for the first TV spot of uh, PlayStation 5 with the tagline, Play Has No Limits. Uh, now Chris, you got the jump on this and you actually got to uh, talk to Sony about this. I'm going to hand over to you very shortly. Like, But as you kind of point out in your piece, uh, one of the, 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 uh, the opening line is, Welcome to a world where you can feel more. And yes, that is my advertising voice. Um, we've heard a lot about feeling around the PlayStation 5. It's called the Dual Sense controller. It's got haptic feedback. It's got 3D audio. None of this is stuff you can get across in a CG, you know, a, a, an admittedly impressive TV ad. None of this is stuff you can get across in a live stream, which is the only way that both platform holders have to kind of promote their uh, their next gen consoles this year. So I thought it'd be interesting to like, talk about the challenge of how do you how do you convey the experience of playing a next generation device when no one can play a next generation device thanks to the complete absence of any kind of hands-on opportunities yeah um i actually it's interesting the ad when i first saw it i liked the ad um and i actually think it does a very good job of trying to do that um i i, I it's an ad that because i maybe i was paying closer attention to it. i don't normally spend so much time looking at an ad but it, it you could feel it you know when you know and you know the uh, uh, the actor in the in the um on the in the in the ad puts you know his hand on the ice and the ice cracks and it feel it's a good they've done a very good job of making it feel like an ad that you, a sensory ad i guess um but um uh, i actually initially was a bit um 
hang on, this is a, this doesn't seem like the sort of message you'll be sending out. You know, surely you should be playing into the strengths of, of games at the moment, which is about connecting people together. Mate, surely we should be um, playing, you know, playing into the social elements. Um, you know, it's, it's a lonely person in this playing a thing. But um, I, but I actually, but in terms of what it's trying to do, which is get gamers, this is a very ad aimed at gamers, um, excited about hardware. I thought the ad did quite a good job, but it did, you know, you hit upon the, the, the problem that PlayStation have. Imagine if the Wii came out this year, right? It, I mean, yeah. <laughs> you just imagine. That's a good point. That's very good point. <laughs> well, you know, you say that. Okay, no, you say that, but you say that. I instantly flash back to, do you remember that original advert for the Wii Remote? And you saw no gameplay. It was just people waving this thing around or doing drums or chopping at an invisible thing or fishing or whatever and you instantly got what the Wii was without seeing a single gameplay so I think in that instance no you know what you can yeah, but, 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 get but, but, that across so, but, okay well let me let me go back a little bit so what I'm so PlayStation 5 is going to sell out at launch it's going to sell loads of copies it's going to sell millions at launch it doesn't even if PlayStation didn't do a single app did nothing it was going to do really well at launch and probably all the way till Christmas and as well Xbox and the Nintendo Wii would have done as well the problem that, you know, all consoles do well at launch. Even the ones that have failed. Look, look back. Look at the GameCube. Your GameCube was like a record-breaking launch, and it was a failure of a console. But um, the key is all about momentum, right? That's the thing. That's what these campaigns are about. They're getting people excited now. So they get really, really excited. It turns some heads. Console comes out. Loads of excitement. Big game launches. Loads of excitement, and it keeps. And because momentum is the key thing, you know, of any console, and it's elusive. It, everyone thinks, you know, we often talk. We often talk about like price and um, launch lineup as being key or, or schedule for the year as key to um, uh, the momentum of a console. But actually, it's often not that. You know, the PlayStation 2, it was a DVD player. The Xbox 360, it was a sort of the HD thing and the Xbox Live thing. And the Wii, it was the motion controls and the Switch was the first thing. Switch had a terrible launch lineup with the exception of one very incredible game. You know, they all, they all, they, what, what, what often creates the momentum of these consoles are quite different. And, and, it, and what uh, Marcus are trying to do at this point is create momentum, get a lot of excitement for PlayStation 5. So it's not about how many they sell in December or November, whenever it comes out. It's about how many they're going to sell in January and February and March and how they keep and how that keeps going. If the Wii, if the Wii had come out, the Wii, if we had come out in, in, and nobody could play it, um, or you couldn't have people around your house to play it, yeah, you, you know that ad isn't going to sell it alone. The Wii, the Wii spread like a like a. Oh no, I'm not gonna say virus. Um, the we, the we, the we, <laughs> no, Chris. Um, the we, the we just spread. You know, it, it, I played it. I bought it. My friends came over. They played it. They bought it. Their friends bought it. And that, you know, that's what happened with the Wii because it was a game. Because it was a device about feeling and fun and interactivity. Um, so yeah, I think PlayStation have a have a challenge in trying to really get excitement about this console that takes it because I'm, I'm i'm honestly worried about the next, uh, this next generation not 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 for not for this year this year will be fine it's about what's beyond that we've got the economic worries is the big one but then there's also like how excited are people going to be about something that they you know i the amount of times i've bought a console because i've played the latest machine around my friend's house you know that 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 even that's not possible it's um i think it's a real challenge and i think you know um uh uh I think this ad does a it does a relatively good job considering it, um, but I, I think it's they've got a really hard task. Um, I think. Oh I think you're right that they'll they'll probably Sony especially um, sell through everything they can ship at launch, but like I I don't think that this year has been uh, good for momentum for the next gen, and I think that the uh, the issue of not being able to have people go hands on is particularly damaging to this generation um, because the the advances in graphics are so you know uh, minimal iterative I, I i don't know it's it's not like the the blow you away kind of seeing, experience yeah. of a new console from several generations ago so the appeal here is like with sony they there's this um the, the new haptics in the DualSense controller. Well, you can't really, you know, check that out easily right now. That's a, you really need to have it in your hands to feel why it's different from Rumble. The 3D audio, well, you know, you're not going to really get the difference of that watching a TV ad or in a movie theater even. Like, you, you kind of need to experience what that's like on your own setup to, to really understand what that adds. The... Um, the, the loading times 
that's really really important to the you know the experience like one of the the thing about the iPhone when I first played it that really blew me away was just the like instant switching between the apps and quickly loading things and it was just like everything was just there right away and that is not what the appeal of the thing was really necessarily marketed as or supposed to do but like that was what made the biggest difference for me from you know an iPhone to like the previous uh phones that i had had and and all this stuff is like it's really experiential but when there's this pandemic going on and you don't have the events and people aren't getting their hands on stuff that that just absolutely you know kills the word of mouth about how everyone really needs to try this experience and then when you have things like you know xbox series x isn't going to have its exclusive games this year. <laughs> like it's launching and you can just play all your old games on it. Enjoy. I, I actually 600 I bucks actually, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, I actually think that Xbox in a way could, because the situation is, you know, is about that games are popular at the moment, right? So people are playing lots of games. Um, and, you know, while as the pandemic continues, people will continue to play lots of games. Um, I think what, What's really fascinating to me is that Xbox is Xbox isn't really selling. I've said this every podcast I'm on. I sound tiresome, but um, Xbox isn't really selling a console. It's selling Game Pass. Game Pass yep, is its yep. platform. Game Pass is actually a really compelling proposition in a pandemic, right? I mean, it, it's it's you get so many games, you get access to tons yeah, and tons. Everyone of games. just bought a PS4 and an Xbox already. They're probably yeah. not looking to upgrade in five months. <laughs> well, that's another thing. Right? They don't have the money anyway. Um, well, yeah. Well, there's there's the financial elements. There's, there's so many different. <laughs> it's interesting actually because uh, 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 there's a, there was I can't remember. I read a maybe it was on the BBC. It was just the amount of people that have saved up lots of money during the pandemic. Um, but obviously, that you know becomes a bit of a moot thing when the when you know in the world we live in now and in the economic situation. But the um, the uh, uh, yeah, I just you know I think Game Pass is is you know is a value. It's 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 affordable. You get access to lots of content. I think PlayStation Five has that appeal too. Um, it's just I don't I I worry. Like, I I think in a strange way for, for considering they've announced no games really. Um, I think Nintendo are probably in the better shape this Christmas because they've got a device that's out there. It's more affordable. People know what it's like. People have touched it. People have played it. Um, it, 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 but they haven't announced any games. No. <laughs> well, Pikmin let, you know, three. Uh, yeah, come on, Marie. There you go. Uh, <laughs> hang the holidays on. I'm it. so sorry. I am so sorry. Um, uh, no, but you're right. But the thing is, we're, we're talking about new console sales here, and Nintendo are very mm. good at selling their consoles on games that are up, right? So, you know, Mario Kart is still the reason people buy a Switch, and Animal Crossing is a reason people buy a Switch. Um, uh, the problem Nintendo has when it comes to the, this is going off on a tangent, um, but the, Nintendo's challenge is, is in keeping people engaged, and they need to create keep keep creating new stuff in order to keep people engaged. They could easily sail through Christmas on Mario Kart and 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 pay and well not Paper Mario, but a sort of Animal Crossing and Smash Brothers and that kind of stuff if they wanted to. I'm sure they've got games coming out, and actually I'm sure that by the end by the, this podcast might come out, we might you know know about a new direct or something. But but um, I, I think they might be in a better shape um, simply because people know. The, products it's a, it's, a, it's easy to sell um whereas um playstation then that marketing team i feel for eric and his team they're having to work super hard now because those tv ads are now having to convey a lot more than they ever used to there's there, there are they are the avenues of promoting content to their gamers is, is, is narrowed which on the one hand you know there's something to see said about having the clarity of knowing where to place your chips but whenever a console launched before it used to be everywhere right it used to be in every it used to be at every event in every shop um, in every shopping center, so shopping mall, um, uh, it used to be in you know on TV, in cinemas. You know, half the cinemas aren't even open. The anime the ad was. I said, I spoke. One thing I left out of the interview, I spoke to Eric. I said it actually feels. I'm going to go see the Christopher Nolan movie next week, and I'm like, I'm hoping to see it during that. And he went, Yeah, most places don't have cinemas open yet, so um, you probably won't. And, and I was like, Oh, because um, it felt like an ad that's supposed to be on the cinema. All these avenues are, are closed off now. PlayStation, they've got the online avenues and, and they're going to invest millions in it. And I'm sure it'll be the biggest digital marketing campaign we'll ever see in video games. But um, uh, I, you know, I, I do feel that, um, you know, the inability for people to um, to go hands on about a console that's all about how it feels to play and how fast it is. Um, it just looks like an iterative PlayStation at the moment. Maybe it is. 
I don't know. I haven't been able to play it. <laughs> uh, and that's, you know, you've got a lot of skepticism even in the media about whether or not this new generation of console is next consoles is ne necessary. You can't even convince the media at the moment because they can't play it. Um, it is, it's a real challenge. Um, and, um, but I mean, I, I admire the fact they're trying and I think the yeah, ad does a good job considering the restraint. But yeah. Yeah, I'm going to echo a point you just made. Like, the, the, there is a real lack of hype about this generation, and part of that hype comes from not just from the gamers talking about it on Twitter because they played it at EGX or PAX or whatever, but the the journalists and the journalists and the YouTubers and the influencers and everyone who in, in the media that usually gets hands on earlier. Um, than anyone else earlier than the public they said oh my god this is absolutely amazing you are going to need to buy one of these come christmas and as you say none of them are like it'd, it'd be bad enough i, I think a like, console laws like this could survive the fact that they can't do you know shopping mall tours or big consumer shows the fact that it still it can't get it to media so you can't have people championing your message championing uh, championing your message or even just uh, just giving an unbiased opinion like okay of course sony's going to say you know this is going to feel different to everything we need a we need the media we need the um the the games journalists to kind of pass what that means and uh, and and say whether or not they're, they're accomplishing that like and, and we're not getting that this year so it's, it's going to be such an interesting start to this next generation like i i, I thought the ad was was a good ad and as far as that type of thing goes like i'm not super fussed about it i have to say but it, it it's weird because in 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 the year where we can't try those hardware this new hardware etc i'm actually craving for more basic information like i want to know the price i want to know the release date and i don't really care about whether or not it has a haptic feedback or whatever like so i thought that was quite an interesting choice as the the first ad uh, about the playstation 5 that it would focus on that At the same times i do understand because it's it's quite important that they market those those novelties in in the hardware but personally it's just not enough i just i'm just craving for more like just just tell me how much it is when can i buy it like you yeah. know I, I agree with you maria it's like it's not that i i don't blame anybody for not announcing stuff like i i'm i'm, I'm a nintendo fan and i'm so frustrated that i don't know why why what, what nintendo have coming up but i know why i don't you know i'm sympathetic to um uh, uh them because the situation is that they don't know if the games will come or when the, if they do you, you know i said this before you know they they're not entirely sure what when will launch and how it will launch, um, and how all the distribution is, and if there's a second wave or if coronavirus can it flares up again. So the idea is you leave it to the last minute, really, or not the last minute, but late as you can, late as you're comfortable doing, to say right, okay, we think we're going to be able to launch on this date, and it's going to be distributed in this way, and this is how we're going to do it. Um, and it gives people confidence. You know, you leave it to the point where you know you, I'm sure Nintendo could. I'm sure Nintendo know it's releasing this 35th anniversary Mario set, but you know they've got to think about you know how or why or, or what the message is and what the marketing is and how to create it so and it's the same with um playstation how many units do they have they can't really they thin out to price just when you open pre-order you open pre-orders you need to know roughly how many stock you're going to send into retail and how do you know how are you going to know that if there's another outbreak in china or something you know it's it's difficult um for um to, you know, they want to leave it to a point where they're, re they're relatively certain that they can announce these things. And, I, and I, so I'm completely sympathetic, but it's really frustrating as a gamer. And that's what I find really fascinating, because I think the PlayStation, I think PS5, has been. there's been so much hype behind it. We saw that in May and June. Every time we wrote about PlayStation 5, our traffic went off, you know, went off, broke, and broke our website. Um, and um, uh, uh, you saw the amount of people that tuned in for the PS5 reveal. It's so much excitement. But... I think the first comment that was underneath um, the PlayStation ad, yeah, yeah, well, well, very good, but how much is it? What the launch lineup? Uh, when's yeah. it coming out? Um, <laughs> and, then, and I understand why they're not announced that yet. And I, you know, as I say, uh, they will do. And you know, they're going to tell us. Don't you worry. But it has sort of um, taken a sting a little bit. I think the summer has taken the sting out. This this new E3 hasn't worked, and, and not that it was any, again anything anyone wanted to do, but um, it, it's taken the sting a little bit out of that launch. Um, and you know, but. But I will say this to be a little bit more optimistic. Nintendo announced its entire Switch lineup and release date and price about six weeks before they launched it. And that went very well. So there's still a very good chance 
that you know PlayStation and Xbox can achieve a similar similar thing. Last thing we're going to touch on this week is Bossa Studios has shifted the way it works. Uh, as of now, Bossa employees can either work from home permanently or they can work at the London office every day or a, a mix of those locations as best suits their working preferences and personal needs, he reads from the email that he got. Um, this is based on, they basically they did a survey of the the company, all the staff, um, which I think is something like 100 plus people at this point, 150 plus. I don't think they've quite reached 200. I could be wrong. Um, but of them, 78% of uh, employees said they either prefer working at home or they're not actually fussed as to whether or not they have to return to an office. Um, this has been a, a debate we've kind of touched on here and there for the last few months. Um, just obviously the, you know, the, the pandemic shifting everyone to a home working model can this be sustained? Uh, there's a, a drop in productivity, but a lot of people are reporting kind of uh, better balance with kind of work and family life because the second they're done, they can clock off and spend time with the kids. That's certainly why I enjoy remote working. Um, and, I, and when we posted this story, I did see a lot of um, uh, reaction on Twitter, like, oh, brilliant, good for them. This is, uh, I think this is going to take off. I think a lot of studios are going to do that. I'm just intrigued as to your thoughts, um, team. Well, like, do we think this is going to become a trend? Uh, do we think this is limited to certain types of studios are going to be able to operate like this? Uh, it is a trend. Um, in fact, I think Fail Better are also transitioning to a remote team now. Um, and uh, we've seen other studios. You know, there was a studio that started up by the old uh, Respawn folks that decided they're going to be a remote studio now because of this. I, I will say this, though. Somebody very smart, Guha Bala, um, obviously, he runs Veland Studios. They're all working from home at the moment. And I asked him about whether or not he would have them all work from home um, in the future. And uh, we had a little bit of a chat about it. And he came up with a very interesting thing about the hybrid model. And he doesn't, he's concerned that hybrid models don't work. Like, you either need to be completely remote or completely in the office. Because if you're not, you automatically create a sort of them and us situation um, between those who work from home and those who don't. And uh, it's interesting because we're a completely remote team. The games industry is we all work from home um so you know we've learned to communicate and work together i think all of us are as isolated as, as well perhaps the us teams a little bit more but um generally speaking we're, we're not we don't go into brighton we we sort of did occasionally which is where our offices are based um so perhaps it's not quite as noticeable for us but I, I then think to myself but i do feel relatively remote from the rest of the company like i feel like we're almost a separate <laughs> separate company sometimes and um and uh in terms at least culturally and I thought that was quite interesting because if you aren't going to go to the hybrid model, you have to work very, very hard at making sure the people that aren't in the office still feel like they're part of the team. Because it's very easy to do that when everyone's in the office together. It's very easy to make everyone feel part of the team. Well, I say easy, it's easier. Um, because, you know, you can go out for lunches and you can play games at lunchtime or you can do something after work. That All those sort of things are possible. Um, whereas someone who's stuck at home doesn't get those doesn't get those opportunities. They might, oh, they might have been forgotten to be invited into that meeting and those sort of things. Those are really, those are things, they, so the idea of a hybrid model, and I'm not, also maybe I've already thought all this through, they're very smart people. But, but there is that risk that if you go from a, a, a sort of, if you're going to some people being in the office and some people not, is maintaining the fact that that is you know that's still one team just different location okay you got me thinking i was all i was all ready to be like yeah this is a great idea i think bossa is doing a great thing blah 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 and now you just said that and i'm like actually that's a good point because i do feel that maybe we're a bit isolated from the rest of the company like so yeah i don't know what to say anymore now <laughs> sorry guha's <laughs> <laughs> point he said and i actually thought and i did the same thing to me and i went huh <laughs> even, and then I, I think that's kind of a problem with remote working though because mm -hmm. even if there's you know a lot of gamer network people in brighton that doesn't necessarily you know it doesn't matter to us as far as how remote we feel from them if they were all distributed everywhere around the world they would still i think feel just as kind of distant to us in the amount of you know interaction we have with them day to day and i know we're all remote um and you you did say that yeah the u.s team um and i'm in canada but i've come yeah, to I... accept that people are just going to call it u.s anyways <laughs> um <laughs> i like we do feel remote even even from 
the 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 UK side, uh, the European side, just because you know there are time zones uh, difference, and and yeah. and you know I wind up uh, working more closely with with Rebecca during the day uh, than than with the the European team, and and her even more so um, because her her day overlaps less with with yours. And I've actually found myself like logging into our Slack of an evening because I've, I've got like freelance work and stuff to do in the evening, but I find I, or I'm doing you know my own personal like, writing or my non violent game blog or something, and I'll find myself logging into the Slack to chat to Rebecca because that is literally the only time I can because as I clock off, she clocks on, yeah. And so, it, it, it can make you feel disconnected from members of your own team. So I think that's sort of inherent to remote working and the hybrid model will uh, maybe accentuate kind of the outsider feeling uh, of, of people that are working remote. But like, I don't, I don't think a full remote model is necessarily a solution no, so, to that. So my point wasn't so much that, um, so I'll give you an example. Um, uh, we're, we're sort of, uh, yeah. So there's always gonna be an element of remote being distant from each other. But when you're a fully remote team, everything is built around you know, we, we, we are, I always find it fascinating when, during the COVID situation, some of our colleagues are finding, you know, they're, all ha- they're having constant meetings all the time. I'm being invited to constant meetings. And I, even my boss said, you know, we need to have these constant meetings because now we're remote. We need to be able to talk to each other more frequently. And I'm like, I've always been remote. I've always, this, and we don't need to have, we, we don't need to have quite so many meetings. We've learned, you know, they've learned not to have quite so many meetings. They're going for a learning experience we already know. And because we're one team, sure, there are, there's time zone differences. There's definitely remote negatives that, you know, that we can still work on. But as, because we are all remote, we, our entire structure of our, of how we operate is, op, is a remote operation. Um, and our, our, our parent company, and it's not, it sounds like I'm stacking off our parent company. It's not what I mean. Um, but, um, they do a AGM, annual general meeting, and it's entirely in an in physical event. You need to be in person in the room, and um, that's that's a that's and they and there's and it only it's only whenever it gets close to that event do they ever go. Oh, maybe we should be live streaming this to all of our people that are you know don't work in the office. And these are these are the things that happen when you are when you have a hybrid model. Sometimes it's e- easy to forget. That some of your people aren't in the office. It's easy to forget that team that does that's over there or dis- distribu- distributed or whatever. Yeah. And so we feel. And so it's not about whether or not it needs to be fully remote or it needs to be um, fully in the office. I, I, you know, we they say the company we work for has a hybrid model, but um, um, it's just about making sure that if you are going down that route, you need to make sure that everything that you do takes into account both groups of people to in order to do the best you can. Because there are, you know, you're not going to be able to, it's not going to be perfect, but to make sure you do the best you can to ensure that everyone still feels part of a team yep. to distribute. And I suspect that's really hard, particularly if you've got over 100 staff. Yeah, there's definitely a danger of, of people feeling left out, people feeling on an island, and just sort of an out of sight, out of mind um, mm. mentality from, from the office side of it. That's all we've got time for this week. Uh, We'll be back next Monday with more news and more discussion. And we'll be back later this week with the first episode of The Other Spin-Off. If you haven't already heard it, go back on your uh, podcast feed. You'll find The Game Developers Playlist by Rebecca. That's going to be a new monthly show where a developer talks about the games that inspired their career. I'm going to be working on something slightly different, and you'll find out more about that on Thursday. Until then, you can get your news, insight, and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz. (laughs) 